Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Scott David Chase. This is my truth. Tell me yours. Um, this is the first episode of this podcast that I've recorded in 2018. I don't know why I'm speaking so slow. Um, felt good to get back in and uh, start talking to people again. Um, as always, uh, well, not as always, but just like season two, um, this podcast is sponsored by WeAreDapperTies.com. Um, if you need a tie for any occasion, they've got quite a selection on WeAreDapperTies.com. And if you enter the promo code TRUTH when you're checking out, they will waive the $5 shipping fee and I'll get a little something in return. So yeah, if you need a tie, uh, check it out. WeAreDapperTies.com. Promo code TRUTH. Um, this episode... I talked with John McCormick. Uh, John's someone that I've known tangentially for, you know, a quarter century now. Um, known him personally probably about 10 years or so. Uh, but he'd been a, um, a staple, uh, a mainstay of the Seacoast New Hampshire music scene since I was in high school. Um, he was the guitar player and one of the songwriters for the band Fly Spinach Fly. Um, he has made music consistently ever since he's working uh uh on a new album the paint box project he's recording it at my brother chris chase's uh noise floor studio in dover that's where we met and sat and talked um it was an interesting conversation uh mostly about music we talked about prince quite a bit which uh which was awesome. Uh, both of us are huge Prince fans. I would say John is a even bigger Prince fan than I am. And, uh, yeah, just had a great chat. Uh, John was someone that I, when I first made my list of people I wanted to talk to, uh, one of the first names that came up. So I'm glad scheduling wise, we were finally able to sit down and chat and, uh, yeah, hope you enjoy it. day of January. This is my first one of these for 2018, actually. Cool. I, uh, well, I, so I, as I was telling you about doing that trip, I did 23 of them, and then we put them all up at the same time, so it's kind of like, and we put them up at the beginning of the month, so I want to give it a little bit of time, because that's mm-hmm. a chunk of stuff, but I was also like, I was like, getting itchy to, like, get down and talk to people again, because I was doing it, like, two or three at a clip a week mm-hmm. before I left on the trip. And, you know, when I started doing this, I made a list of, cause I, in my head, like what I thought was like 30 or 40 people that I wanted to talk to just in the, the general area, like, you know, going down to Boston and up to Portland and mm-hmm. everywhere in between of just artists, musicians, writers, actors, that creative people that I just knew for your own. Yeah, and people that I know very well, people that I know kind of tangentially, and so on and so forth. Um, So I decided to sit down and write out a list so that I could, like, once I started going through, like, cross people off and whatnot, and I wrote it down, and I had a... The initial list was 177 people, and I was like, oh, shit. smokes. That's a lot of people. Yeah, well, and it's... (laughs) uh, So I did... I don't think I even know that many people. 
Somebody else said that to me Never recently. Never mind wanting to interview them. Oh my! Because I do another podcast, and I was talking about it with the guy I co-hosted with the other day, and he's like, he's like, I can't even think of 177 people I hate, much less would want to talk to. <laughs> right? I was like, yeah, but it's funny. So it's, I mean, but you were you were on the list of people that I wanted to talk to, and it's Number like 172. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I didn't. I I didn't rank them in order. I've only had, and I've only had two people say no so far. Um, which one didn't surprise me at all. It was just, it was more a formality. Bill Clinton? Yes. He was like, <laughs> I can't do it. Sorry, no, I can't. No. Um, uh, it, was, it was a guy that I've known for a long time who doesn't like doing, like, hates having his picture taken, yeah, yeah, yeah. is very, like, and, and it was, but it was one of those things that I knew that if I didn't ask him, and then I asked someone else in the same line of work beforehand, yeah. it would be, it could potentially be like, like an ego thing. So it was just, sure. I was like, and if he had said yes, I would have loved to have talked to him, but I also knew going forward. Yeah. It probably would have. Well, it's funny you mentioned Bill Clinton, but I, I have a friend who works for a data security company, mm-hmm. which is not a very, you know, sexy or exciting thing to talk about. But right. one of the, they puts together these conferences about um, data security and internet security. And uh, one of the big speakers that they often get is Monica Lewinsky. Okay. And she is like, she builds herself as sort of like patient zero for internet shaming. Right. You know, and, and I guess she gives her like a really pretty interesting talk, which I would imagine it would be, you know, after all yeah. these years, given the perspective. Because that's going back 25 years now. Yeah. God, that's crazy. Yeah. And she gets 50 grand a pop for these. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny because when I'm you kind of like, good, she should make some dough. Her life got ruined. Oh, yeah. You and know? I mean, I, I can't. Like, I don't think with an incident like that, you can go back to having a normal life no, no matter no, what. No, 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 You could be at the top of your field. What I mean, I, I you know, because I think she was an intern yeah. or something and like that. Even if she changed her name. Even if she changed, I mean, she, you her. know, she was all over the news. And I mean, it's interesting, though, because given our current climate, like, I don't know if it would have necessarily had the negative impact on her life. That it did then, if it happened now. I mean... Well, I mean, I guess you could argue... She was, yeah, she was kind of the first one to, to, to get explode on the internet. Because that just happened to be happening at the same time. Right. But I don't know. I mean, now, that stuff, you know, it's such a regular occurrence. Like, I mean, anything you, happens and it's out there so quickly. You look at Paris Hilton, who, I mean, it's different, but it's on the same street of what happened. You know, her sex tape leap, leaking, and that's basically mm. why she has any sort of career i mean right i couldn't tell you for the life of me what paris hilton does but nothing she was the she was the first uh that i famous for nothing famous of being famous for nothing. yeah i knew who she for was being. like five years before i knew who the kardashians were yeah so. that was about the timeline i think she said yeah. that she, she created the blueprint for all of that i think yeah yeah it's it's crazy well it's funny going back 25 years because that's like you've been making music like i was in high school in 91 mm-hmm. and that's around the time i started buying music on my mm-hmm. own so mm-hmm. you've been making music basically the entire time that i've been a music consumer which is wow i don't know if it, feel it's something good or old well, <laughs> or both i feel good and old well it's so funny <laughs> because like you know i was I, when i was in high school so like 93 yeah 94 i was in a band and um you know, you guys, Fly Smidge Fly, had been playing out for a while. And I just, you know, and I said this to Mark when I talked to him that, you know, I pictured 
you know, in my mind that you guys had been doing it for forever and mm-hmm. were this like established, like these elder statesmen. Right. But in reality, you guys were like three or four years older than we were at the time. Well, yeah, and that was an age. It's funny because we're recording. Right? Yep. Yeah. We're so recording. that was an age, even for me within the band, where there were like, you know, now at this point in our lives, like a couple of years difference doesn't really matter. Right. But, you know, the difference between 16, 16 and, and 21 or 16 and 21 is huge. Yeah. So, like, even within that band, there were. Uh, Chris Hall, the bass player, and, right. and Drew Webster, like they were a couple years older. I mean, that band started like the summer between when I graduated high school and went to college. Yeah. So I wasn't even in college yet. And, um, you know, so those guys were a couple years older. They had their own apartments. Right. They, they, one of them was married. So it was like they were in a different world. I was living in my parents' house, you know, just playing guitar in the basement. So it was like we were in different worlds. And yeah. then Mark, when I met Mark, he was even a couple years younger. Right. So, the, at that time, it's so compressed. You know those those age small age differences make a big, a big difference. yeah. And your life experience changes so rapidly totally, at yeah. that time. Totally. Well, it was funny. I remember, and this will date it. Uh, I was at Rock Bottom Records uh, in the second location, which is the to the bookstore or the the oyster the Franklin Oyster House mm-hmm. now. But uh, I saw this cassette. It was the Minds of Minolta cassette. And I yep. was like, what is this? It's Chris. Yeah, and it was Chris Hall. And somebody who was working there at the time was like, oh, that's the old guy from Fly, Spinach, Fly. The which, old guy, Which, yeah. you know, he was probably like 25 <laughs> at the time right. or something like that. Right. But, you know, um, yeah, it's so funny. Well, it was a cool influence, though, because those, you know, they were like the older brothers that I've right. never had. And uh, they exposed me to, you know. Flat, uh, Parliament, Funkadelic, and right. like a ton of stuff that I never probably would have been into that, you know, they dug pretty deep in yeah. the music catalog, so it was cool. Which, funny enough, is, I mean, that band, Fly Spanish Fly, sort of became known as like this heavy riff rock band, but we really started out with like, as a funk band, I mean, right. we just wanted to play like James Brown funk as fast as we could, and Parliament type stuff, right? you know, which is strangely enough what i'm getting back to now yeah. with this new record that i'm doing with your brother it's kind of hearkening back to that because when i was a kid like my sisters were way into disco when i was really mm. little and not just disco but like funk prince yeah. and the gap band and you know early 80s late 70s michael jackson and stuff like that so it's that's always been there and yeah. you know i just got so into playing big heavy riff rock guitar for so long and it was kind of like that ran its course a little bit. Yeah. I, mean, I can do it. I still do it. But now I'm kind of digging back to that early love of that stuff, you know? Well, it's interesting because you were probably the first rock guy that I was aware of, certainly locally, um, you know, because the internet didn't exist in the early 90s or it was in its, it was in its infant stages. Uh, so I wasn't, you know, nobody was going online to find out like read articles about music, but I remember, I don't think it was even hearing you. I, I, th- I think it was reading something where you were talking about Prince being a f- huge influence. And I was like, Oh, I didn't know that people who were like into rock, like Could, were, yeah. were allowed to, right. Right. You know, I didn't really like yeah. uh, the, my only experience with any sort of mixing of the paints at that point was faith. No more. Sure. And, 
and they were considered sort of like a, a wacky outlier. Yeah, yeah. and you well, know, it's funny man, the '90s. You know, Fly Smash Fly wouldn't have existed any other time. Right. The '90s was a time when it was a good thing to mix all that stuff. Right. I mean, you had look at like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you know, you it got to a point where it was like, let's throw everything in the pot. You know, funk, punk, ska, right. metal, right. core. You yeah. know. It, what what else can you throw into the soup? You know, yeah, yeah. but that was that was good. That was encouraged at yeah. that time. Um, then it kind of I don't know if there was like a backlash or it just changed. But then I think I think Limp Biscuit was a was like a third out. third generation of people <laughs> yeah. like all right, enough of this horse shit. Yeah, well, and I remember with Fly being, um, you know, we were sort of talking to some managers and record right. labels in New York City, and them kind of saying like, oh yeah, this you know rap and heavy guitar metal like rapid metal that'll never that's never gonna work right you know, so the band breaks up and then two years later all that stuff happens right not that i necessarily wanted to be limp biscuit but we could have certainly ridden that wave because i think we were a little bit we were at the cusp of it sure yeah you know? i mean rage against the machine was a yeah rage. pretty much a new band at that mm. point i was playing we played a gig in new jersey um and this dude came up to us at a gas station and handed us a vhs tape and it was it was Rage Against the Machine. I'd never heard of them before. Yeah. And it was just a um, the video for Killing in the Name of. Mm. Just that on a VHS tape. And like he was just part White of their... White label video. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was like just part of their street team or whatever. And he was huh. like, you guys look cool. Or you could see that we were in a band. Right. Had, you know, so he just gave us that. Out. Yeah. I mean, genius. You know? Yeah. It's grassroots. So when did, um, like, what was the time frame for Fly existing? Um, geez, I mean, like 90, 89 or 90, I think yeah. the band formed, or early 90. Uh, I met Chris Hall, bass player. He and Drew were in this band called Super Fudge Chunk, named after mm. the ice cream. And yeah. Bill Exidius and I, who we went to high school together. Bill okay. and I and Dan McGarry grew up together, went to high school together. And we used to go see that band at UNH. We used to go see shows. And we yeah. were like, wow, if I ever was going to start a band, that's pretty much exactly what I would want it to be. Yeah. So then a week later, they broke up. We bumped into one of their friends, connected with Chris. Chris came over to my house. We instantly wrote like three or four tunes. Yeah. And I want to say that was like the summer of 1990. And then it existed through sometime in 96, I think. Okay. It just kind of petered out. I mean, our last show was pretty disappointing because like a lot of bands, you know, it just sort of fizzled rather than... <laughs> there wasn't a defining, okay, now it's over. It just sort of like, yeah, eventually. Yeah. yeah. Somewhere I found a, I think it was a bootleg or something. Someone played me recently and it, like, we were, it was either our last show or we were talking about the last show. Yeah. Coming, it was, it, I think it was the Elvis Room. And we were talking about mm -hmm. how we were playing at the Bull and Beer House in Plymouth in two weeks and that was going to be our last show. So it mm. was like this last minute decision, you know, like, mm. let's just hang it up. I remember... I mean, I saw you guys at the Elvis Room a couple times, and those were insane gigs. Um, yeah, those were great. That was that was the fir first and possibly the only time I ever saw anyone have their feet hit the ceiling of you know, <laughs> from crowd surfing. Uh, yeah. I mean, because you know, for those listening who are not you know from the seacoast or from that time period, the Elvis Room it was. It was one of the only places to play around here. Um, yeah, it was. I mean, you could you could do the press room, but that really was you know 
jazz was right. more there. Did you guys ever play the press room? I don't know if we ever did. We played the Stone Church. We played the Ellis Room. And then there I were always some random... you guys, like, getting that whole band on that no. tiny stage upstairs at the press no, room. No, but we did play places that were smaller than that. Yeah. Um, then there were, like, random places like Club Excalibur, you right. know, which then became Spin, or maybe it was the other way around. Right. And... Uh, decadence in Dover or yeah. the dungeon or whatever it was called. They were just kind of random places, and I saw you guys went at the Ioka mm. once. Um, yeah, that was with the Bruisers, I think. Yeah, yep. Because yep. um, it was, it was, it was the. It might have. I don't think it was his first show, but it was the first time I had seen it was Chris Chris Bear playing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Um, but that, and I think that was the last time I saw you. Uh, and you guys just put out the, the the poor man's Picasso and the classical fear conditioning. Were those the only? Well, we had a first album that was only ever on cassette. Okay. And we did a couple of pressings of cassette, and we've you know over the years we've talked about putting it out digitally. And I, I, sh- I think I'll just throw it up on a website. Or yeah. I mean, it's well past its freshness date, but right. enough people have asked over the years that, and I do have it digitally. Yeah. I just I don't know. Every I, time I've talked to the guys about like, hey, we should release this on a disc or something, like, it just. I don't know. Everybody chimes in. It's like, well, I want the artwork to be like this, and I want it to be like, and then it's like, you know what? Never mind. Right, right. And because it's, it's not a tension thing, but it's just sort of like it's eh. just so many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah, I just want to. I'm like, I'm just gonna throw it up on there. Yeah, uh, I remember check it out if they want. For years, I had, I had made like a like a like a compilation CD, with both. Four minutes, Picasso, classical fear conditioning, and then you guys had some songs from the Play Hard compilations. Yep. So it was all. It, it, I mean, it wasn't a complete discography, but it was right. everything I could get my hands on. Well, we did that. There was um, there were a couple compilations. The third, I think it was the third Play Hard compilation. We had a tune that we recorded. It was like the last batch. There were three songs that we recorded down in New Jersey yeah. as part of this, this like label development deal. Is that they we using were, much karate? Was karate was yeah. one of them, and there were two others that were great tunes that never got released yeah and i, I somewhere i still have them which hmm. is they're, they're kind of fun tunes but those have never seen the light of they've day. never no they never they were never released uh, uh i just remember i mean play hard was the as far as i know the only you know local label uh around that i was aware of yeah at the time it was one of those things that um i mean they put out those compilation albums. I don't remember what else was on, but it was one of those things that early on I was like, Oh, if I see the play hard logo, that means it's, it's worth getting. Mm-hmm. So I, I ended up buying like six That's or seven CDs. Yeah. Uh, how, like wh- what was the story with that? Like who ran that? Butch Halshorn. Okay. Who, Butch was in a band called Bob house when I mm-hmm. met him. In fact, Bob house was Jay Fortin and, and Paul Jarvis from scissor fight. From scissor that fight. Was their band yeah. With Butch. Which was funny because it was kind of like country funk, right? Very different than Scissor Fight, right? Um, they gave Fly Spanish Fly sort of our very first ever show at a party in Newmarket, and then Butch went on to start this label with a guy named Jim Doolittle. And okay, I, I still see Jim around once in a while. I'm not sure what he does, but huh. they did that, and it was cool because I don't. I mean, yeah, there wasn't really any other label on the Seacoast at that time, right? Right. So it yeah, fun. it was just one of those things that I, I, in my mind at least, my, you know, 16-year-old mind, mm-hmm. it sort of legitimized, you know, you know, I have no idea how much the label actually did stuff that labels are supposed to do at that point, but in my mind, 
seeing a record label logo yeah. on something, I was like, oh, this is this is a little bit more serious. Right. So. And from our perspective, I mean, that's a funny, it's a good question because I mean, we didn't really know what a record label was supposed to do. Of course, right. we were kids, you know, I'm not, right. I don't know, how old are you now? Uh, 42. Yeah. So I'm not that much older than you. Yeah. So we were, I mean, we were kids, we were like, we thought the record company was supposed to do everything. Like, yeah. give us a big check and take care of everything. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. not really how it works. Right. <laughs> it's usually the other way around. Yeah. So, but that was our dream anyway. Yeah. You know, for that to, so it was always like this, well, what are they doing? What are they doing? What are they doing? Yeah. But they also weren't really taking anything. You know? Sure. In retrospect, it was just, we didn't make So you had nothing to lose. Yeah, we had nothing to lose. And it was cool. It was cool that there was a label. Well, that was one of the yeah. things that having, having co-run two really small independent labels myself, that was a question I always had when I was doing it. I was like, okay, what's a label supposed to be doing? As, especially, right. I was like, okay, so in, you know, in, 2000 what is a label supposed to do in 2005 what's a you know well good questions changed yeah it's changed so so much now yeah i mean back then you could make a run at it because there was no itunes this was pre-napster yeah so you could people actually bought cds and people actually bought local music untested music that was another thing the 90s like it was okay like we used to go play in new jersey which even more so than here asbury park and that area people would pay you know seven bucks to go see five bands they had never heard that they'd of. never heard of. It would be like one band from that area that they knew, and and they were excited to hear these bands from elsewhere. Yeah, which is why we kept going back because they dug it, yeah. and they wanted us back. So I'm like, wow, these people have no idea. They have nothing invested in us. And now I I, I don't know. It's different. It's a little bit different now, and I'm sure this has always been the case. But people kind of want to hear what they're familiar with. They don't really, sure. really want to take a chance on much. Not everybody, of course, but generally speaking. It's, I mean, in the last, like, five years or so, just talking to people who are trying to play out live, it seems it's more difficult than ever to get people to come out to shows. I mean, I think part of that is, at least my perspective is, it's a couple things, is, the devaluing of music. Like, people still think music is important, mm. but as far as paying for it, as far as totally. going out to monetarily support, because, uh, you know, people are like, oh, well, I give them exposure. I tell people, that's great. But the people who are making the music, it's not free for them to make it. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and it's it's really fucking hard to make a living making music. Oh, yeah, music. That, that genie is is very much out of the bottle. I mean, when the whole sort of Napster thing happened, you know, I, I really tried to see both sides of it. I'm like, okay, this this is a devaluing of the music, but at the same time, it's what a great way to get your music out there. Yeah. You know, and for a while it was sort of this, okay, what's going to what's gonna win the day? Is it going to be the, the promotional value of being able to get your music out to so many more people, or is it going to be the other way around? And, yeah. And I think... The, the the verdict is in. <laughs> right. It's totally devalued. Yeah. That starting with that, I think it's totally devalued because I mean I play so many shows, especially particularly with cover bands where um I mean people just think literally think that you wave your hand in front of this instrument and whatever they want to hear comes out. Right. And I hate to sound like cynical about it, but it's I just get that so much. Right. People come up to you in the middle of playing a song and start talking to you about what they want to hear. You know, like you realize I'm I'm doing this right, right. now, right? You know, yeah. like I'm not just 
this doesn't just I'm not come a jukebox. Through. Yeah, this doesn't just I don't just push a button and this comes out. Like I have to actually look at the guitar for a minute. But I was um <laughs> it's funny. Yesterday I was I was painting and uh you know, I frequently will put music on. I don't know, I said frequently, I pretty much always put music on when I'm painting. And uh you familiar with the band Converge from Boston. I have heard of them. Yeah, they're so they're like a hardcore band, but mm-hmm. they they put out a live record a couple of years ago and I was listening to that and at one point it's towards the end of the show and it's just a single show. Mm-hmm. And you can hear one in the crowd shouting out song names and the guys like you know, you do realize we have planned this set out the set list out yeah, a yeah. long time ago. Yeah. It's not going to be that fucking song. Sorry. Like, yeah, oh yeah, I've yeah. gotten very adept at handling, you know, any kind of hecklers. It's just I don't get it. It's like, uh, you know, if you want to hear that, like, you probably, you maybe listen to it on the way over. I, I think it becomes a thing where people think it's funny to just come up with the most obscure cover or, you right. Know, I don't know what it is. But, I, but there's a lot of people that, you know, was in this band, Camarawana, as, right. you, as you're aware, which was an 80s hair metal cover band. And right. we were dressed head to toe as, like, you know, wigs and. Right. pleather pants and I mean we're doing the 80s metal hair metal thing and like this dude came up and said you guys do Mustang Sally and I'm like eh, no we don't we don't really it's not do that exactly that style I mean we had just finished a 45 minute set of like Guns N' Roses Motley Crue right. you know the Scorpions and he wanted Mustang Sally and I'm like no we don't do that and he goes what about the chicken dance and I'm like eh. And I'm literally in wearing lead, red pleather pants, right? And, you know, and I'm like, you see what we're doing here, right? Like, right. How, how old was the guy? Was he was he... pretty old. He was like 75. So maybe he just didn't. He maybe just didn't, didn't know, figure, but didn't realize. But what... that was a common occurrence. Like we'd have people all the time just be like, play eight, six, seven, five, three, nine. I'm like, well, we don't do that. Do it anyway. I'm like, we don't, we don't do that. Like even thematically, it doesn't work with what we're doing. But also, right. we don't know it. So again, right. this goes back to. You know, just wave your hand over that instrument and make, and make whatever I want to hear come out, <laughs> which is a bummer. But then, you know, the thing that balances it off is you get those people who really do understand what goes into it and appreciate it and right. dig it. And that's so this band that I play with now, The Wheel of Awesome, we've, you know, we've had a couple string of really good gigs where people are just like, wow, this is great, you know, and there's always a few people that. And ex- so explain the, the concept of The Wheel, Wheel of awesome, awesome is so, I, I don't know how I came up with this, but I thought it would be cool so just take it back a step like again Camarawana I've played in cover bands but if I play I prefer to play original music but if I'm going to play in a cover band which is fun right I like to have some kind of theme or something that I guess elevates it from just I don't want to just stand up there in shorts and play you know Tom Petty not that there's anything wrong with people that do that it's just not for me like I want to do if you're going to do it you're going to do it on your terms if I'm going to do it I want it to be a show like some kind of presentation or have some kind of and I don't know I guess you could say it's a shtick or whatever but something that makes it somehow more interesting than just because again this goes back to I I don't necessarily care to just be background music yeah so I want it to be a little more of a spectacle I want it to be something that people are kind of in some ways forced to pay attention to. Right. Hence, you know, Camarawana was all 80s hair metal and we wore costumes. And then I had a band called Bling Cherry that was 70s disco funk and we were all in costume and, you know, the same idea. So the Wheel of Awesome is, um, I built this big game show wheel in my basement. I took just foam and uh, actually rototoms, which are drums, and made like a center spoke 
out of it and I put all these different categories on the wheel. So we have like a Prince category and a Bowie category and even some non-musical categories um, like trivia. We have an improv category <laughs> where we'll, we'll make up a song on the spot. Yeah. And we just keep adding these categories and learning songs. And so during the show, we spin the wheel and sometimes we let people from the audience come up and spin the wheel. And when it lands on that category, that's what you play. That's what we do. You know, and again, some you know, we explain this and people see this and they're like, play such and such. I'm like, well, that's not how it works. You know, the, so even with that, people are still. Oh, yeah. Huh. Oh, yeah. And that's that all the time. That's you and Tim McCoy and Tim McCoy. Yeah. Who's, who's playing drums? Uh, Rick Habib. OK. Habib. If you're sexy. And uh, the keyboard player is usually Chris Sink. OK. And sometimes Duncan Watt sure. fills in, you know, with like a rotating cast. Right. Yeah. But it's yep. super fun because we have to know a ton of songs. And, I mean, we literally will go from, we have a category called Girl Power where we do, like, Lady Gaga, Britney Spears, and female artists. Uh, Americana is, like, classic American stuff. Tom Petty, the band. Um, you know, so it's all over the map. Like, we'll do Britney Spears, and then we'll do the Rolling Stones, and then... Prince and so it's it's fun for us because we never play the same set twice right it's fun it takes a little bit of explaining um working on how to like get it across more quickly but once people sort of see what's going on they you can see them all starting to like lean in mm -hmm. you know and pay attention yeah. and be engaged which is that's the whole idea sure um how the rehearsal for that must be <laughs> it's gotten easier i mean we we figured out first we were like okay how does this work how is this even going to happen right because like, the wheel could land on rolling stones eight times in a row you didn't you don't know so we figured out that we have to have really a, a minimum of four preferably five songs per category sure and we sort of you know we will give ourselves a mulligan like you know if it lands on the same thing too many times or um I mean, we could theoretically just retire a category. I mean, there's no rules, right? right? We're making the rules. So if we've played all the Stone songs we know, then that category is retired. Right. So, but yeah, it's a lot of tunes. I mean, we've got, I think, 12 categories with a minimum of probably six, at this point, six to eight in each category. So it's a You're lot. You're talking close to a thousand songs, theoretically. Ooh, I don't know about a thousand. Maybe, you know, probably more to, more like a hundred. A thousand. Apparently, I'm terrible at math. No, no, no. You're right. <laughs> that you're would be right. a lot. Yeah, yeah. I wish. If I knew a thousand, then I I could put in you know every category I could yeah. think of. Yeah. Um. But that's super fun, you know. And again, it's another thing where it just is a way to to kind of get to the same result. I mean, we're playing cover tunes, we're playing music for people. Yeah. But it's bringing something a little different. Yeah. Which is ultimately selfish. I mean, they do all that stuff just to entertain me. You know, because I could just go up there. I mean, there's plenty of people who I love and respect who just go up there and play the tunes and, you know, they're wearing the same thing they wore to work or whatever. It, right. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I just, for But me, that doesn't interest you. It doesn't interest me. Right. I, if I'm going to, you know, play my stuff, then I'll be me. Yeah. If I'm going to play someone else's stuff, I kind of want to be in character a little bit. Sure. It's funny. I, uh, when you mentioned Duncan, uh, he's someone that has, like, popped in and out of this podcast a bunch inadvertently so duncan's the producer mm -hmm. for my podcast mm -hmm. um but we like 
never talk like I, I never tell them who I'm talking to beforehand because I just do it on my own and then mm. give them the and uh, he but he does his his the Muse podcast right. which their new episode just well yeah, with Nick with Taylor. Nick and it was great but I had no I like I because I also record one of my podcasts uh, the real fake news podcast mm-hmm. with a co-host at his studio oh, so we okay. were there on Sunday. And he didn't say anything to me about it. And then, like, he had, he had no idea that I knew Nick. Nick had no idea that I knew him. But, like, you know, I did, I did one of these with uh, Sean Daniels uh, mm-hmm. last year. And it was the week before Gravity played at 3S. Mm-hmm. And Duncan was playing keys with them. But I had no idea until, like, the day of. And yeah. he's like, oh, yeah, Sean, that's cool. You talked to Sean? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah, I'm playing with him. I was like... Yeah, I fucking know because Sean told me. <laughs> it was just, I only know that. It's, it's, well, I did his podcast with Order of Thieves, which okay. is another band that I was in with Rick and Bob Lord. Okay. Was another name, that central mob right. of music in the area. Yeah. Um, we did the Muse podcast with, with Duncan. That was fun. Yeah. It's got a great little setup there. Yeah, it's, it's a cool little spot. And it's funny because he was in December when I was working a ton. He would babysit my dog, dog sit for me every once in a while. So. Mm-hmm. He did this one session where he had like twelve Celtic harpists in there, and you know, oh, he took yeah, a picture yeah, of my dog with all the harpists in the background cool. and stuff like that. It's just, you know, we we would joke because the podcast that we do there is this. Uh, it's just, it's uh, the real fake news podcast, but it's uh, we've my partner finds stuff online that are real stories, but they're ridiculous and more often than not disgusting and then we just he presents them <sighs> to me and we kind of riff it's right. and it's you know sophomoric right dude humor so i was just like you know he's having all these like conversations and sessions with you know these seasoned musicians and whatnot and then we just you know come in and do the you know the dick and fart show yeah. on <laughs> but you know that's great it's 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 fun um so that was you said Order of Thieves was on? Yes. So Order of Thieves was a band, uh, is a band, theoretically, that uh, myself and Rick Habib, who plays with me in The Wheel of Awesome, and right. also on this new project, Paintbox. Um, the one that you're recording the record for right yes, now. Yes, exactly. Okay. And that band, it was sort of a, I mean, I guess a, a mishmash of, the best way I can describe it would be if you're familiar with a band called Starch that I was in years sure. ago, post Fly Spanish Fly. It's like a mixture of that plus Dreadnought because Rick and, and uh, right. Bob are both in Dreadnought and right. have been for 25 years. So them being the rhythm section, there's definitely got that element to it. But then more of like the melodic, you know, heavier guitar than Dreadnought and I guess more melodic vocals. Who does, who does the vocals in that? Primarily was me, yeah. some Rick, and a lot of harmonizing between yeah. Rick and I, which really enjoy. Well, you, for, like, post-Fly Spinach Fly, most of the projects that you've done that I've been aware of, you've been the vocalist, but mm-hmm. um, you were, you didn't do much in the way of vocals for Fly Spinach Fly. I mean, no, there, there no, were two, two other, didn't you do yeah. some backing vocals? Yeah, yeah, yeah it was a couple, I, I mean, I never thought of myself as a singer then right. at all, and I still think of myself as a guitar player, primarily, yeah. more than a singer, but yeah, there were, and, and I mean, that was a, it was really rap group right. was its thing. So we had the two MCs and then there were a couple of tunes where I would occasionally kind of counterpoint that, right. you know, a la like, I don't know, Lincoln park style where you've got, 
they almost do the opposite where it's like mostly singing with a little rap on yeah top. yeah exactly yeah. it was the other way around it was like mostly well, rapping and then occasional unfortunately it's going to be all rap now right. but right. you know that sucks. not unfortunate that it's rap at chester bank no so, i know what you're you saying know, it's no um yeah so then starch was the post fly spinach fly band i was like jamie perkins played drums yeah, in that? that's how i met jamie so Jamie was in a band that I used to work at a recording studio and his band came in and they broke up while they were in the studio. And okay. I was like, that guy's great. So yeah. I approached him and was like, you want to be in this band? He said, sure. So initially we got Tim McCoy to play yeah. bass and then, oh no, actually Mark Paquin and Tim McCoy kind of yeah. played bass in the early versions. So I was a foray into, I don't know, I guess sort of like Foo Fighter-ish, you know, melodic, power poppy, yeah. rocky kind of thing with some funk in it. And then you did Museum of Science. Museum of Science sort of grew out of so Sean LaRose started playing keyboards and initially just didgeridoo in Starch. <laughs> and we just had this uh, thing where, like, Sean and Jamie and I had this great chemistry and had a lot of fun playing music, but we just could not seem to hang on to a bass player. Like, first mm. we lost Tim and then Mark. And then, um, when they were just busy, they had other stuff going on. And then we had Drew Wyman for a while from Thanks yeah. to Gravity. Yeah. And he was busy. Then we got another guy. And it was like, we just could not. So we started, it all started as a gag. Sean used to, um, which was back when people used to get crazy telemarketer calls all the time. Yeah. And he would get, you know, pre do not call list. So Sean rigged up his phone so he could record these telemarketers and he would just mess with them just yeah. to, you know, keep them on the air as long as he could. And we started taking bits and pieces of those recordings and like putting beats under them and stuff and doing something. I started experimenting with guitar that sounded more like a bass because we had no bass player. So it kind of grew out of not having a bass player. Like, how could we do something? Was it baritone guitar or just. No, I would play through an octave pedal. So the octave pedal drops with a boss octave pedal. You can drop the guitar tone one octave or two octaves. Yeah. Uh, Fool in the Rain by Led Zeppelin is probably like the best example of, you know, if you hear that sound. Most people just use it to, or like Jack White uses it all, a lot. Right. Um, most people use that one octave down sound where you it, you hear the original guitar sound and then you hear it an octave lower. So it just sounds, it almost sounds like two guitars playing the same thing. Mm-hmm. But you can also set it, I would turn the one octave off and I would turn the second octave all the way up and then mix in just a little bit of the signal and it gets this crazy... Almost sounds like a synth bass thing, but it's on guitar. Yeah. Because it's dropped down like two octaves from where you're actually right. playing. And it just, you're like, wow, we don't need a bass player. So yeah. that solves that problem. Mm. <laughs> so we took these jokey tracks and kind of turned them into more of a real thing. That, yeah. was, that was a super fun band because we constructed all the stuff in the studio with no, absolutely no thought as to how we would ever do it live. In fact, we were like, we'll never do this live. There's yeah. no way. Then we figured out how to do it live. Yeah. And it was super fun. So. Nice. That that band could have theoretically make a, a, a comeback eventually. Yeah. We still dabble. Because there's, I think I have, when I, when I came back from living in Arizona five years ago, I had several people the first couple of years gift me their entire CD collections. You know, they mm-hmm. had dumped everything onto a hard drive and moved on. And so I ended up getting uh, one particular collection had a bunch of local music so i got i think the well there were three museum of science cds in there i didn't know if you made more than that wow no that's all three I mean, but yeah the, the the was there one with a green cover there's green the, the green one's or, really hard to find really i don't think i even have that one 
uh, it was an RPM project that we okay we just decided like okay let's press like a hundred of these yeah you know? um, are you doing anything for the RPM I mean I know you're recording this record right now so I I think I might so you know it's a little bit of a cheat because I you know you're supposed to make all the stuff in the right. month of February but I've been working on this band with um, again with Rick Habib and Stu Diaz and Mike Klimpa who's in Gretchen and the Pickpockets okay used to be in Red Sky Mary. We had this kind of like big, heavy twin guitar, Sabbathy stoner nice. metal thing, and we were talking about like, hey, it'd be great to pull it together for RPM yeah. to kind of crystallize it because we've got we've got some great tunes. They're just floating around in the ether. Yeah. So, it could be a good excuse to pull it all together. Nice. Which uh, is really kind of the purpose. Of kind it. of the yeah, and and I mean, it's not a it's not a contest or anything. So right. I think the fact that some people have stretched the rules and whatnot. I like no one's going to be like, no, this can't be. You can't attach the RPM. Name. Yeah, like, I mean the idea is just get the music out there, create in the. Right. Yeah, I just uh, uh, I just confirmed with a a buddy of mine this afternoon that we're gonna we're gonna do we're gonna attempt to do a record, which I haven't done one in years for because I'm barely a musician. Uh, although the the first time I. The first time I did stand-up comedy was 11 years ago, and I yeah. I used the RPM challenge as my excuse. I booked a show at the um, the Players Ring nice. and recorded it and put it out. I mean, cool. back then it was, I think the rule was you had to physically release it, where now yeah. so like fewer and fewer people are releasing physical sure. CDs, at least. Yeah. Um, it seems like everyone's releasing... But I remember that first year of the RPM project, or maybe it was the second year. I think it was the first year, but it was it really kind of took off. Yeah. It was seven or six. And it was so cool because I remember going to the Porsche Music Hall. It was like this big party. Yeah. And they stacked up all the all the releases on the stage. And, it, you know, it covered like the whole front edge of the stage, there, yeah. which is big. And then everyone went around town and they had booked all these venues to play at least one track from every artist, you know, so like 10 different venues play, and just all these musicians that I knew and people that I didn't know were all just roving around town in packs going from place to place. Like, let's go here and listen to your song and we'll go there. And it was just, it was cool. It was just That's like awesome. this validation of the music scene or yeah. any music scene. Sure. You know, stuff was coming in from around the world yeah. at that point, but it was just cool. It was like the whole town. We took over the whole town. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's crazy because this is the thirteenth year. I mean, I remember here. I don't think I, I don't think I picked up on it the first year, but the second year, and they're like, "Let's do it again." I was like, "Oh, this is this is awesome." Um, yeah, I feel like the first year was a little grassroots, and then the second year it just sort of like caught fire. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, because I mean, it's easy to come up with an idea, but to right. have follow through and especially have dozens of other people follow through as well then it becomes a real thing so you know the second year okay we did it last year let's do it again so right. yeah i'm i'm hoping to talk to uh both i i'm talking to guy uh next week and hopefully talking to john nolan at some point too so mm -hmm. i'm sure i mean i figured this would be the month to do it and to talk to those guys because yeah, they certainly totally. uh had their fingers in it so tell me about the Tell me about the record that you're working on here. So the new project, Paintbox, yep. is... Uh, so we are, go back to the start. So here's how this happened. Um, literally was, you know, you never know where inspiration is going to come from. So yeah. I was painting a room in my house, or looking to paint a room in my house. My yeah. wife and I went to Home Depot, 
and I started looking at the, you know, those little paint chips or swatches, yeah, yeah. whatever they call them, and came across this one called French Chocolate. Hmm. And I didn't really care for the color, but that name kind of stuck with me, and I was right. like, that sounds like a tune, you know? And at the time, I was playing in Bling Cherry, which was a cover band, but I thought, so I went home and I wrote this kind of disco-y tune, and I thought, wow, if, if Bling Cherry ever did an original song, that would be that would be it. So that was kind of the original intent. And then mm-hmm. went back, we're looking at paint again, and I come across this paint called Gypsy Teal. Mm. And I'm like, man, I can already hear that in my head. So went home, wrote Gypsy Teal. I'm like, now I'm now I'm onto something, you know. Yeah. So I go back and I'm grabbing all of the like everyone I can get my hands on. Like this big stack of paint chips. And it wasn't the colors, it was the names. Right. You know? And so I went through them and then it just started like coming out and I was like just trying to get out of the way of it. So in the course of about two weeks, I sifted through and started like the seeds of 15 or 16 tunes all named after all named after these colors nice then i a few of them i I combined a few colors sure like sweet annie pepperberry was (laughs) was was there was a color called pepperberry and one called sweet annie and i smashed them together because it sounded cool um whatever and it was it was very liberating because i didn't care what they you know if they if they went together i didn't care if it sounded like me or anything that i'd done in the past i just was following my nose like whatever this name suggests sure so it was very liberating and, and it's eclectic for that reason they're you know they're a little bit all over the map because that's how they came about yeah so you know i don't care if gypsy teal sounds like lime candy because they're different so right. i ended up with this powder fresh lime candy uh enchanted navy Gypsy Teal, which I mentioned. There's um, Royal Autumn. There's Rust, Sunset. There's a bunch. And I asked a, an attorney at one point, I was like, so am I going to get sued for this? And he said, well, no. Not if, as long as you're not manufacturing and selling paint. Right. <laughs> these are just words. You yeah. can't own these words. You know, like, if you think about it, and the way he explained it makes total sense because people have asked me that question. I'm sure there are there's a paint color, probably several out there called blue sky, right, or green grass, right. So can someone tell you not to write a song called Green Grass? Of course not. No, I'm sure. Although Metallica successfully sued a fingernail polish company who had a color called Metallica. Oh, really? Well, I think that's. I mean, that's a made up word that they correct made up and and i'm sure that i'm sure it's a registered trademark and oh it's gotta be yeah i mean i think if you if the band was metallic alcohol right like you couldn't own that right because it's two things in the tangible world maybe theoretically if if you brand something and trademark it right you can you can do that right but you know like kleenex right kleenex isn't a real word it's it's a brand name so you can trademark that right yeah um so Anyway, he said it was cool, but then I started to realize, I started recording this, and this is when Chris, Chase, your brother, yeah. was in his old studio in Ronsford, started recording it with him, yeah. took the first batch of eight songs, which were the most finished, and I thought, well, I'll do album number one, and then I'll finish up the other batch, and I'll do album number two, like an EP, and then a second EP. Right. Then he shut down his studio and started building this studio, where we're sitting now, which took some time, and in the meantime, I kind of started looking at these songs and thinking, uh, man, this there's actually sort of a storyline here, even though these are totally eclectic and came about, you know, very insulated from each other. Mm-hmm. 
there could actually be a thematic connection here. And part of that was inspired by my good friend, Billy Butler, who I played with in Gay Bride and Frankenstein. Yeah, I had Billy Butler on my, the first season oh, of this cool. podcast. So. Yeah, so I was in his show, Gay Bride and Frankenstein, and he did the show called Bitter Pill, which yep. was great, which was similar. It was like a, just a collection of his songs, but thematically you, sort of strung together. You guys did the, the Nashua incarnation. Did, yeah, I was in Bitter Pill in Nashua. Cool. And I started to see this arc of a story... And then filling, you know, filling in the blanks between these songs. And like, it was a little bit of, okay, there is a storyline here between them lyrically, but also I can shape some of the songs to fit the story because they're mm. not done yet. So there could theoretically be, I mean, there's definitely going to be an album. I decided to smash them all together and just do one big album. Sure. Rather than two. Um, and then ideally there could be some kind of either stage show or, uh, visual video element or something telling this story some sort of presentation other than just a band playing the song yeah 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 and it all kind of it was funny how you know it paralleled the original inspiration because once i started looking at these songs it's like oh yeah that one goes here and that one goes here and that one goes there and that fills in the gap in the story there so it's ultimately the story is sort of based on this woman's sweet annie hence the song sweet annie pepperberry right and she is an artist, and it, it kind of raises these questions. She's a, she's a painter, a visual artist, and it kind of brings up these questions of like, what do you do during your life, and what do you leave behind, and what do you create? Do you share it with people? Do you not? Yeah. And how life kind of gets in the way because in the story, she you know her dream is to be a painter, but things just get in the way, and she's not encouraged, and she's, you know, never her art doesn't see the light of day. Yeah. Until she's quite old. And so there's also this element of like, well, it's it's never too late. Even if you're old and you you don't have to be young, you don't have to be Ariana Grande, you know, right. to like be a valid artist or sure. whatever. So there's that element of that too. Like at the end of the show in her, I don't want to spill the beans, but like sure. she gives, you know, she finally comes out into the light. So it's yeah. really, um, so it's kind of the story of her life, but at the same time, the subtext is those bigger questions of like what do we do and what do we leave behind and what do we create right told through these songs which are all inspired by paint colors yeah so it's a lot to tie together thematically but i kind of got it mapped out in my head do you have are you singing all the songs or do you have other people singing as i well? am singing all the songs i do have some some people guesting yeah and some of the stuff that I've done, I may go back and have people either sing over it or replace it just to bring in some different vocal textures. Sure. But, um, you know, I guess it's it's the first sort of solo album I've ever done. Um, will, it be, will you release it under the Paintbox name or under John McCormick? So that's a question I'm sort of struggling yeah. with right now. I don't know because I was talking about maybe doing some live shows just to kind of get the stuff because we've never really played the stuff live outside sure. of a studio. So... Um, I don't know if I would bill it. I, I kind of like John McCormick presents paint box or John McCormick's paint box or John McCormick and the so and so. You know, like sure. present. I like the whole present thing because it just reminds me of like when I was a kid. There was that show, The Midnight Special. Yeah, remember that? But yep. it was like Burt Sugarman presents well, The Midnight Special. As we were talking and kind of going through the different bands that you were playing in, I, it just dawned on me that like you know. You know, I, I I brought up the whole thing about you making music pretty much consistently for the last twenty five years that I've been aware of, but I was thinking about it and I was like, I don't think he's done anything under 
own name, even though for most of the projects that I'm aware of, you were one of, if not the creative driving force in the band where, you know, there's a lot of bands, a lot of musicians who have been around this area for a while who eventually, you know, uh, I mean, you know, uh, Tim McCoy, um, you know, he, you know, he, he plays with Watts and he's played with a mm-hmm. bunch of other people, but he also has Tim McCoy in the paper cuts right. and, you know, um, John Nolan did solo record, you know, uh, Andy Happel has done yeah. some, you know, so and I was like, oh, John, I was well, like, I always liked that idea of being part of a band and, and it's true. I have been, you know, usually, usually am on the, one of the main writers right. in the band, but, uh, this is the first time, I think partly because of the way the project came about, it was mm-hmm. so intensely personal. It was just me. Like I yeah. was playing drums, bass, guitar, whatever on these demos that I was making. So it was all me. And, and I actually didn't even bring anyone in until I got to a point where I was like, I need some, I need a drummer. I need somebody. So I asked Rick yeah. to come in and Rick has really been my co-pilot, you know, from the get go. He was the first guy I brought in and, and he's perfect for that because he's such a, a, an amazing drummer, but he's a musician more than a drummer like yeah. he listens he you know he can play if you ever heard dreadnought or order of thieves i mean he can play the most insane you know 13 8 yeah ridiculous progressive you know totally down the rabbit hole progressive rock shit or he's perfectly happy to just tap out a ringo star you know like right i'll just play the tom right, right. you know if that's what it needs if that's what it needs which no sounds, ego about it. It sounds know? like this project, it's all over the map that your your rhythmic needs. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So he's the perfect guy for it. Jamie Perkins plays on a couple. Yeah. Um and we'll see where it goes. You know, then I brought in like Nick Feneff played on some some bass and a couple different bass players. Couple different Are you the only players. guitar player on it? I am. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not well, I guess only because uh I brought in people to try and do the stuff that I can't do. Yeah. And there's there's not not that I'm the world's greatest guitar player, but there's nothing that I've written that I can't do. Sure, sure. Well, and I mean, are the are there any are there any projects that you've worked in where it's been a two guitar band? Um, I've been in a few where there was just sort of a second a rhythm guitar player. Yeah. Part of I mean that's and to me it's not it's not an ego thing. I just think that guitar sometimes one guitar is too much. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure. saying that as a guitar player. Yeah. So like when I see two guitar bands, if it's not really designed where the two guitars are playing interesting parts it, it gets really muddy really fast yeah. to me especially live so that's why this this thing with stew that i'm doing will be really interesting because it's we've built it from the ground up to be a twin guitar you know we're either intentionally playing different parts that go together yeah. or you know what i mean yeah it isn't the traditional like you play rhythm i'll play lead it's, right right it's more each playing different different parts yeah it was uh i mean i remember when i was a kid you know reading like circus magazine and stuff the lead guitarist was always the one who got all all the glory in it but early on listening to stuff i realized that like a lot of times the rhythm guitar player was the sort of the the guy a lot of times kind of playing the meat of the song totally yeah um i was like oh man that like uh, one of my favorite rhythm guitarists of all time, Scott Ian from Anthrax. Yeah, yeah. He's been on like a ton of those VH1 shows, and you know he says he gets you know people recognize he's the most recognizable guy in the band. But everyone who doesn't listen to the band thinks he's the singer, and he's like, yeah. no, I'm the guitar player." Right. Like, 
oh, you're the lead guitarist? He's like, nope, I don't play the no. solos. I'm just the, the guy playing just the there. guy chugging away. Yeah. But I mean, writing the songs. And then that's huge. Yeah. You don't realize when you're younger, because I agree, I had the same. Yeah. Whether it was like the Scorpions, it was always Rudolf Schenker, yeah. was like the guy writing the tunes, and he never played a solo. Right. And, you know, never got the glory. Yeah. Or, uh, Who's another one was, uh, well, Keith Richards is a perfect example. I mean, yeah, a lot of people think Keith Richards is a lead guitarist, yeah. but nope. And he does on a few songs, but rarely. I mean, yeah. he's, he's, but he, stuff wouldn't exist without him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, God, Johnny Ramone, one of the greatest rhythm guitarists right. of all time. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, the list goes on. I mean, Black Crows, you know, yeah. Chris Robinson wrote most of those tunes, never played a solo. Yeah. They always yeah. had some, some guy to blow the lead guitar. Oh, you mean Rich Robinson? Rich, yeah, yeah, sorry. Rich, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Although he's a, I I told this to someone on the road, but so he's got his band, uh, the Magpie Salute, now, mm-hmm. which is like him and a bunch of Black Crows alumni, mm-hmm. and then Chris Robinson was played at the Music Hall maybe three or four months yep. ago, and uh, I this was like one of the few times I've intentionally been a dick, but I think I think. I love the Black Crows, but Chris Robinson, I think personally, is kind of an asshole. Yeah, um, and, seems pretty erratic. Yeah, and they're like the the Black Crows, like the two brothers, don't talk to each right. other. And I was walking from Bull Moose, and I walked past Chris Robinson, and I was like, "Hey, man!" And he's like, "Hey, man!" You know, whatever. And I was like, "I love that new Magpie Salute." See, like knowing that that's his brother's uh, thing, but he's like. And he just walked. <laughs> he just walked on. I heard him on Howard Stern talking about that whole thing, and I mean, yeah, I could see how he's pretty abrasive, but mm. he, you know, some of the stuff I totally got where he was coming from. Yeah, I mean, I'm you sure know. there are not even two sides to it. It's just different perspectives yeah. on it. And I mean, I, you know, being in my my brother's studio now, he was in a band with my brother, our brother Tim. For years and their personalities are very very different i can't i can't imagine being in a band for decades with yeah a sibling yeah uh you know yeah it doesn't always work out I mean, you know i mean i get a lot oasis and yeah they're getting the back kinks together now. the kinks yeah. our oasis getting back together i heard that they were huh but i don't know maybe that was a rumor i heard around the holidays they got together and patched things up interesting because you never know yeah i mean i'd like that but I, I there's been so much you know hubbub between the two of them and the yeah. you know in the ensuing years, which I'm sure has gotten played up to some degree because it's, sure. it's good. I mean, it, it, yeah, it sells magazines and it's right. you know it, it's clickbait. I uh, I know not I know nothing about the the is it Avid or Avid Brothers. Avid Brothers, yeah, yeah. But I re- there was some documentary on last night and I, I recorded it. I haven't watched it yet, hmm. but because so I was like I don't know anything about these guys, but I hear their name, so I figured I'd the old, a friend of mine. Um, they named, you know, their their kid is four or five now, and they gave him the first name Avit because it was her favorite band. And I remember when she was, I was making fun of her, uh, and I was like, "Yeah, in twenty years when that band doesn't exist anymore." Yeah. Although I think that band actually has some legs to it, but yeah, I was like, "If you want to give a kid name him after an amazing musician that people are going to know," I was like, "Give your kid the first name Danzig." Right, but exactly. She didn't. She, <laughs> yeah. She chose her own idea. So, yeah, I would have agreed with you right up until that video where he got decked by the fan. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I um, some some friends of mine went out to L.A. for their show, the the Misfits reunion show, mm-hmm. and it's funny the people that I know who are musicians who, you know, have an understanding of you mm-hmm. know what it's like to yep. put on a show 
had a very different impression of the show than the people who are just music fans and didn't know right. anything about it because the people who are music fans had a great time. And three or four people independent of each other, they're like, yeah, he was singing to, he was singing to a tape. It was, oh really? Because I guess he was really sick, and when he was talking in between songs, he could barely talk, and then just yeah, belting would... out the, you know, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it like, feels suspicious. What, a, what, a, what a disappointing thing. But I know. well, and, and then I guess that's so weird. The, the misfits too, of all things, of all things. Yeah, and this is, you know, I. I um, I worked at the casino ballroom for years doing security yeah. and the beach boys did this thing as part of their show where they would call out, they would do an acapella before they went into a song. They're like, Hey, we want to show you something. And then like all of them would, you know, sing. I, it was like part of like help me Rhonda or something yeah. before the song. And they're like, yeah, in sync's got nothing on us. Blah, 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 blah. Well, they had played two nights back to back and i was there early the second night and the the sound guys you know t- checking levels and whatnot and that thing popped up uh, there's no and i was like no one's on stage i was like oh, did you record the show last night he's like no and i was like it's all pre-recorded i was like what was that he's like it's the tape that they sing to and i was like and I was like, well, did they actually sing over it, or is it just they're just lip syncing? Uh, he he didn't get into it because it was yeah. basically like, oh, you've you you peeked behind the curtain a little bit. I can't, yet. you know, and you know, I I they're, they're they're terrible for that. There was uh, I don't know if you saw that video that went around recently. They were on a Today Show or something, mm-hmm. and you know they're a thousand years old. Right. John Stamos is playing drums. Right. And is he playing one, drums or is he playing hand percussion? He's not playing anything. Is right. my point because this, in this video he actually like at one point they're. He stands up and is like waving to the crowd, and the drums are still happening. So clearly, like, there's right. <laughs> clearly, he's not actually playing. But no, I think he was he was sitting behind a drum kit. So theoretically, it's that's such a weird like. Yeah, I remember hearing that he was touring with them, and it was like right around the time that the new season of Full House came out. And I was just like, wow, who 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 would have guessed in you know 2017, 2018 Promo. that John Stamos would have like multiple irons in the fire? Man, you know, he's got legs. The, uh, that's why Prince is probably my all-time favorite yeah. musician, because that guy was the real deal. I mean, one of the only artists, at least in recent memory, to refuse to play, refuse to lip-sync at yeah. the Super Bowl. Yeah. I mean, that, that famous performance of him that was 07 or whatever, Super Bowl, is unbelievable. Yeah. You know? Did you ever he, get to see him live? I did. I saw him like, three times. I, I, I saw, saw him, him Saturday Night Live. You you saw him at Saturday Night Live. We went, yeah, we got tickets to see. He was on SNL. It was the last time he was on, and um, we actually went to the rehearsal. So SNL they do a, a, a run through of the show before right. the show that airs, and obviously it's not on the air. But it's cool because the band gets like a couple extra minutes to jam. The, the show's longer because they actually they have like three or four skits that they're trying out, and then they make a last minute decision about which one to cut. cut. Right. So it's it's more like a two-hour show. And it was great. It was amazing. I mean, he just walked in and I almost pooped my pants. What, uh... Like, oh my God, it's Prince. What time frame? Was that, like, what era for him? That was maybe three to four years ago? Four so, years ago? So it was around the time of his, like, one of his last records. Yeah, it was Third Eye Girl was the band. It was, like, Okay. Um, oh, I remember. Yeah, I yeah. did. I, I did remember seeing and that. that album actually is is pretty good. Like there's is it the Spectrum Electrum record? 
I think it was called Third Eye Girl, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it could be wrong. Because he put out he, he, put, he out a bunch. put out two albums with that band where it's three women right. musicians. Yep. And I think one of them was Third Eye Girl, and I think the second one with them was Spectrum Electrum or something like it might that. might have been the first one, because, I mean, he... Uh, yeah, there's some there's some good tunes on there, though. It's great. He's one of those guys that... Even his albums that aren't, like, really well-known in the, the, you know, the popular... Yeah. Are, there's amazing stuff on there. I mean, like, you know, I, I, I talk to people about Prince a lot, and, you know, obviously there's... The, the big records, you know, Purple Rain 1999 yeah. and stuff like that. But I'm like, I'm a huge fan of The Gold Experience. Sure. It's such a great record. I mean, even even like Emancipation, which was a little yeah. bit bloated with, you know, three three hours. There's yeah. still... 3121 and yeah. there's the Black Album and Crystal Ball. and His albums got less consistent. I yeah. think he started putting out more stuff and that was his whole beef with the warner brothers is they wanted him to put out you know one, one album, album a year. year and he wanted to do like five right. a year so and i could see both sides because he definitely had some misses in the nine, you know the 90s yeah. up through but there's great shit on there too yeah black sweat i mean that's that's incredible um come is a great record that i don't yep. think had any like promotion nope at all. i have that album i love that album and i yeah that that just kind of snuck out there and because he had changed his name to the symbol, yep. Um, and then, but that one came out under the name Prince. But it was like, it, it had like his birth year, and then the year that it came out is like almost like, you know. And all of the photos of him were around the gates to a cemetery too. Right. So it was very kind of cryptic. Yeah, it was very cryptic. But I remember that album is that's a great, great album. That whole first song comes like twelve minutes. Yeah, and yeah, minutes and, yeah, um, yeah. It's a fantastic right there's it's funny because i had uh i was trying to fill in before he passed away i was trying to fill in gaps uh in my collection of stuff because he also released a ton of stuff that you could only get online right or and it, it was even pre-internet ordering where you could call up the yeah like the was it, one nine hundred new funk and order yeah. Yeah, through that yeah, and yeah. you know looking through the discography and, and i was like Trying to find some of this stuff secondhand online is like, you know, a couple hundred bucks. I remember going to New York and, you know, pre-internet or early internet and there were those record stores that would have just crazy bootlegs. Yeah. And, the, you know, the print section would be like yeah. 50, 60 bootlegs on CDs like, you know, yeah, Helsinki, you know, 11, 15, 93. And you just had no idea if it was a good show or a bad show. And right. Like 35 bucks for these bootlegs. But they, I'm sure there was just incredible shit on this. Sure. McCoy has a great story about him he played this benefit i went to a show in worcester it was originally supposed to be in boston and the show got canceled last minute because i think someone got killed outside the venue mm. hit by a car or something so the show got moved and then prince ended up doing a benefit for the family of this person who got killed i don't know what the circumstances right. were exactly but he did a show in boston and um he came out and he played the black album and he played it entirely in the dark Really? Like, not a single light yeah. the whole time. I mean, I, I think they even covered up the lights of the amps and stuff. You know? Yeah. So McCoy was like, it was cool. It was weird, but it was cool. And you he, couldn't get away with that today no. with, with all the security yeah, stuff. Yeah, I know. But, yeah, but he but. just did it. Um, my favorite Prince clip probably is, and it's really hard to find. It was It's the, um, the American Music Awards, like, in the 90s. And it's just, I love how 
cocky he was and like he was a rock star. Yeah. You know? He wasn't he was weird, but he wasn't a dick to people. But he right. was just he just had that mystique, you know? So if you find this clip, it's great. He's in the American Music Awards and he's playing this is when he changed his name to the symbol, I think. And the the whole shtick is like, Prince is dead and then you know, now it's the symbol. And um it's kinda like this big pyramid type thing. There's all these dancers and hyping up Prince and they're playing like this medley of his tunes and stuff and this this guy appears up on top of the pyramid and he's dancing around and you're like, oh my god, it's Prince and then he falls down the stairs and you're like, holy shit, Prince just fell down the stairs like it looked completely real Right. what you don't realize is that among all these dancers down in the front they had like dragged him out under a black tarp or, or sheet right. and like, you know, so the dancers part they ripped this sheet off of him and he just pops up out of like a reverse split. Hmm. And it's just like, fooled you motherfuckers, you know, like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> here I am. Yeah. It's just so great. Wow. And it's just one of these moments where, and he's got that smirk, like, yup, yep. you thought I fell down the stairs, but yep. I would never fall down the stairs. That's <laughs> so great. I gotta, yeah, it's really hard to find his stuff online. Yep. Uh, you know, as soon as it gets put up, it gets taken down because his estate's, you know, very... Less so now because I don't think anyone's really policing that. Well, ever since they out there. put his stuff on the digital service, because it wasn't available until, I want to say, like, 12 months ago or something. Yeah. It wasn't available digitally. And then uh, he had been working on it before he passed away and then it, like, got finalized or whatnot. But, uh, yeah, um... Because I remember the only clip that you could find like legally right after he died, because everyone kept posting it, was him doing "While My Guitar Gently Weeps" you right. know, with Danny Harrison, um, yeah. which was great. But it's it's a cover song, you yeah. know. But it it was great for people who were only like casually aware of him that didn't really know what an amazing guitar player right. he was. Right, and it's funny. I had so many people like we just played a show um, at. Southern New Hampshire University with the wheel Lawson and this like 18 year old kid was doing sound for us and Prince came up and he was just like you know people don't realize what a great guitar player he was and I was like good for you yeah. you know like that's become a thing now I think it's been repeated enough that people, people are paying attention paying attention because it's true for so long like no one realized I mean even when I was young I used to see these Prince videos and I assumed it was Des Deckerson or whoever else in the band was playing all those leads because yeah. it's like no way. I mean, this guy's just the singer. He's just. Right. You know. Then you look at the album. I remember looking at 1999. My sister had that record and it said, you know, all songs produced, recorded, arranged, and, and performed, performed. Yeah. by Prince, except, and then it had an asterisk and they were like, you know, rhythm guitar on Computer Blue by yeah. Wendy Melvoin. Castanets. Guitar, yeah, yeah. guitar solo on Little Red Corvette by Des Deckerson. Right. And those were just the exceptions. He did everything else. Right. And I didn't realize until later that that's how he worked. He yeah. just did everything. Just did everything from the ground on up. Yeah. I always wondered about that because, you know, I would see, I noticed that in on Michael Jackson records before, mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, all instruments by Michael Jackson. I'm like, I can't picture that. I mean, I've never seen a picture of Michael Jackson playing guitar. I mean, I'm sure he, I'm sure he can do something passable mm -hmm. on it. But whenever there was a song that had a, guitar lead he would get you know eddie van halen or slash to come right. do a do a, a guest thing on there i mean and also most of michael jackson stuff is not exceptionally guitar heavy you know beat it and, yeah you know. well most of the thriller album i mean maybe he wrote the stuff but, right you know a lot of the thriller album is actually the dudes from toto yeah 
some of it. Yeah, the Pacero brothers certainly. Beat it is yeah. Yeah. All that rhythm guitar stuff is um, what's his name? It's escaping me now. Oh, um, Luke Hather. Yes. Yeah, Steve, Steve. Luke Hather. Yeah. yeah. Except um, the guitar solo, of course. It's funny. I didn't. I had like a Prince revelation realization last week. I didn't realize he had done a song with Madonna on like a prayer um, because I I had never owned mm-hmm. like a prayer and I found it at Savers a couple weeks ago for a buck ninety nine and I was like ah whatever I mean I like Madonna but I'm pretty much like yeah. a hits guy yeah, and yeah, I yeah. have a I, like I have a pretty good collection of seven inch singles up to Vogue, that's pretty much when I lose interest right. in Madonna. And uh, Prince produced and co-wrote the song, but he doesn't have it, like, there's no credit of him performing right. on the song. It's clearly him singing and sure. probably playing guitar. I'm sure it was a, it was a you know, a legality thing with yeah. labels at and that he point. he would do that stuff. I mean, he plays on, um, Stevie Nicks told a great story when he died of um, Stand Back. Yeah, you know that song. Stand back, stand yeah. back. So she heard "Little Red Corvette," freaked out. Was like, "Who is this guy? I want this guy." She was working on the album. Yeah, and um, her people called him or whatever, and he was like, "Sure." So he came over, performed. You know, I think the song was semi-written or whatever, but he he performs all the keyboards on that song. Yeah, and uh, she said it was classic Prince, where like he breezed in, like sat down like bang this thing out in like an hour just did exactly what they you know changed the arrangement around basically yeah. made the song what it was and she's like i turned around to thank him and he was gone hmm. so he's not credited right you know he just did it yeah it's cool that's crazy um going back to camarijuana days so uh who's your who's your favorite uh from from the hair metal bands who's your favorite guitar player from that era well i mean i I have to go with Eddie Van Halen because you know when I was a kid I was you know I grew up listening to my sister's music that's coming out of their room which was Prince and disco and a lot of folk stuff you know Beach Boys and Beatles my dad was in the Beatles and I remember him teaching me to use the record player and it was Beatles albums you know so I had kind of this folk slash funk background on guitar never really you know i guess maybe i'd probably heard led zeppelin or stuff like that but then my sister was in that columbia records club yep. you know and they would send you albums that you never asked for right it was like record yeah if you didn't if you didn't yeah. tell them not to send it yeah. yeah so this was 83 and i mean this van halen one was already five years old at that point but she got that album they sent it to her and she had wanted nothing to do with it so she just chucked it in my room and i put it on and of course like so many people like that you really got me yeah. into eruption yeah. you know that whole album i was just like holy shit, I didn't realize you could even do that with guitar, you know? So that flipped everything on its head. From there, got, you know, straight into, like, Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton, less so, Jeff Beck. Um, So from the hair metal time, I'd have to go with Eddie Van Halen. Which, to me, he's, I mean, he's definitely hair, but he transcends it. Yeah, they're one of those bands that were of that era, but... Not really lumped in, yeah. With that, I mean, it's funny because I mean, their albums came out in the late seventies, yeah, yeah, which is crazy. Um, and even and sort of at the the close of the eighties when hair metal was kind of falling away was you know when Sammy Hagar was in the band was they had sort of transcended that genre and were more just like mainstream rock at that point, right? Um, I also really like Slash. I just think his 
Yeah. Again, a guy who this you know Guns N' Roses happened in the hair time, but they're really a classic rock band. For sure. And he's really like a, a you know classic blues based rock guy. But his, right. his tone and his feel is so amazing. Like you just you like Eddie Van Halen, you know who it is the second you hear it. For sure. But Slash to me is more accessible because like I feel like I can actually do some of the stuff he's doing. Like Eddie Van Halen, like I can like never <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> some of it, you know. But, yeah. But most of it, I'm just like, how? What is he even doing? Yeah. Yeah. No. But Slash is like it's almost attainable. <laughs> well, it's so. funny because I got into when I first started buying music on my own. The two, because I, you know, um, knowing Chris, I'm sure you know a little bit our our family's history. But I was raised religious so Mm -hmm. we weren't allowed to listen to secular music growing Mm -hmm. up and so i had two tapes that i had stashed in our garage which was uh deaf leopards hysteria Mm -hmm. and appetite for destruction and Mm -hmm. every saturday when i mowed the lawn i would put one of the two of them in because we had a big yard and it would take almost an hour to do the whole yard so so i could listen to the whole album but uh then guilty pleasure right yeah but then you know, 91, 92 happened and the whole grunge thing happened. And then it wasn't cool to like any of those bands for a sure. while. And a it's, time. it's funny. Cause I've gone back, I've gone through a couple different periods where I've like revisited some of that. Cause that's the first stuff that I was listening to. That was popular at the time was the hair metal bands. And some of them, some of them I'll listen to them now. And I'm like, Oh, these guys actually are decent musicians. And sure. some I'm like, these guys are horrible musicians. Yeah, yeah. You, you quickly, looking back, you can separate the cheese. Yeah. You know? I mean, it, like, it, Poison is not the same as, like, a lot of the Scorpions stuff is great. I mean, yeah. Especially early Scorpions, like their late 70s, or Priest. Yeah. You know, some of their late 70s, early 80s stuff is, like, legit. Yeah. Hard rock. It's hard rock. It's not right. metal. Yeah. It's not, like, hair metal. For sure. Um, I've been on a rat kick lately. Yeah, rat. Well, it's guilty pleasure, too, because I loved that stuff. Yeah. Right? Well, and see, I got into them when Detonator came out, mm-hmm. and they had, uh, do you know who Desmond Child is? Yeah. He's, he, he, I mean, he's a professional songwriter, so he co-wrote nine of the 11 songs on that album with them, yeah, so crazy. it's very catchy, very mainstream, yeah. but that was my entry point, so then when I went back to the old ones, I'm like, these songs aren't as good, and then I was yeah, like, oh, good. right, because they had somebody else writing the yeah, songs yeah. with them on that yeah. one. Yeah. It's funny, man. They, um, yeah, Rat was awesome. All those bands, I loved them at the time. You know, it was the thing. Def Leppard, that was huge. I remember Ozzy. I mean, that when this is it's so hard now looking back. It's like Ozzy's such a joke now. Like right. after, you know, he's he's just kind of a character of himself. But he was really mysterious and evil. You know, for sure. I remember hearing Crazy Train for the first time. I was like in a friend's basement. Yeah. And I just remember feeling like my parents don't want me listening to this. Right. I don't know what this is, but yeah. I guarantee they don't want me hearing it. And therefore, it was awesome. Right. You know, it was like, oh, my God, this is so taboo. And so it's just so gnarly sounding. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah, it's it's interesting, the perspective, because I, um, Ozzy was certainly one of those artists. Iron Maiden was another band. Not yeah. so much, because I just their album covers. Just the, like, yeah, everything with Eddie... Yeah. I was like, oh, these guys are maniacs. And it's yep. funny because I listened, and they're like power metal more than anything else. Right. I mean, you know, Bruce Dickinson just has those soaring vocals. And I'm like, you know, number of the beast aside, like, they're not like a satanic band. I mean, at they're borderline prog. They almost yeah. like, you know, bridge that gap between yeah. like Rush and hair metal. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Another Rush like, was huge. I mean, that was a huge one for me. Which again, I don't even think of them in, in the same sentence as hair metal. No, not. no, certainly but, not. 
that was uh, that was big time for me. I was a big Rush fan. They're kind, kind of, of like in a class fan. of one, though. Sure. Uh, and it's funny because Rush was one of those bands I didn't get Rush until about five years. Ago. Like I was aware of them, mm-hmm. had heard them, and you know, but beyond you know, like Fly By Night, Tom Sawyer, and sure. the, the the classic rock radio yeah. hits. Didn't and then it was actually uh, 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 Neil Peart's uh, book, The Ghost Rider Story, yeah. that s- somebody gave it to me, and I read it, and it was it was it's a great book, and uh, you know, and I was like, you know what, I need to kind of delve into. So cool, I was so into them, and you know, they did a documentary a few years ago, the Limelight one. Uh, yeah, the Gilded Cage, I think it was called. Yeah, Limelight one that was really good, and. Um, but they did one more recently, which I didn't. I just happened to catch the other night. I, I taped it, and uh, it was. It's called "Time Stand Still," which is probably my least favorite Rush song. Yeah. But it's about them deciding that they're done. Yeah. And I got like emotional. Yeah. Know, which is says a lot because you know, uh, I'm like, wow, I really go back with this band. And, yeah. And their their fans are so into them. You know, there's people that have been to twenty shows, fifty shows. One guy was 170 shows. So they're totally into it, you know, and it was a tough call for them to not do it anymore. But yeah. Neil, Neil Peart was the guy who was kind of like, I can't, I can't keep this up. Yeah, because, I mean, they're all in their 60s now. Sure. You know, you have to be in, for what he's doing, especially being tip-top physical condition. Right. And it's a lot of work. Plus, he also, he's, he's the lyricist for right. the band. Yeah. And he punishes himself. Like, he would ride motorcycle between gigs, which is, you know, fine. That's his outlet, but... His security guy would always go with him, and he was like, "Man, this guy—he'll do like a nine-hour ride and then go play the show." Right. It's got to be exhausting. Yeah, physically yeah. exhausting. Yeah. I can't even imagine that. Um, what time are you guys? What time are you guys? Um, I don't know. Soonish. My phone was going off. I just. Uh, uh, yeah, probably soon. Seven, I think, is the deal. Yeah, well, we can wrap up. But. Cool. Uh, uh, a final question. So, so yeah. what? What band have you? We were talking about. You know, people have seen Rush a ton. What band have you seen the most, or what artist have you seen the most? Boy, I've seen Prince maybe three times. I've seen Rush about three times. That might be the biggest repeat. Yeah, yeah. Oddly enough, I saw end up seeing a Perfect Circle like three times. Oh, really? Because I love Tool. I yeah. only saw Tool once, and it seemed like. I really was into Tool and wanted to see Tool and the Perfect Circle was what was happening. Sure. Love that band too. Yeah. Seen them a few times. Um, yeah, I mean, that's... I don't... Tool's a band that I've seen the most. Yeah, Tool's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I... Into, I, I unfortunately have missed some of the greatest shows. I had tickets to see Steve Ray Vaughan with Jeff Beck, which yeah. I would have... You know, and I forget what happened. A girlfriend or something right and i ended up not going and then he died and of course he died jane's addiction same thing had an opportunity to go see them i don't know if it was the first Lollapalooza, maybe even before that i forget what the hell happened but didn't end up going um a couple of the band mr bungle yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know missed opportunities yeah so. i got to see um um who did you say right before mr bungle I jane's said. addiction yeah I got to see Jane's Addiction on their first reunion tour when Flea was playing bass with them, yeah. uh, which was cool. But that was that was sort of the point when they like they had already kind of jumped the shark with yeah because they were such a you know dark mysterious right. weird band and then they were just like oh you know like Perry Farrell had been doing Porno for Pyros and 
right. Navarro had uh, been in the Chili Peppers for a couple of years, and it was just sort of like they were rock stars at this yeah. point. I really like that album, 05. What was it called? Strays? Yeah. It's a great album, actually. See, I like. I wasn't a huge fan of that one, although... doesn't hold up to the early ones. Just Because is a fantastic is guitar a song. song. Yeah. Uh, but the album they did after that, The Great Escape Artist, which is very electronica-based, yeah. it's... It's a phenomenal record. It just doesn't sound like Jane's Addiction, which right. is, I think, why it didn't do well. But taken on its own merits, it's fantastic. And like, I was like, oh, cool, they're trying new things. But yeah, yeah I mean, you know, uh, nothing shocking and Ritual De Lo Habitual are just... So Billy Butler and I have talked about doing a Jane's Addiction show for years. And we actually got together and did like two practices. Yeah. I pulled in uh, Greg Glasson on bass and Scott Kinnison, amazing drummer. And we nailed it. Like, I'm like... This is amazing. And, yeah. then, and then Billy has a show come up and we got busy and then it all imploded. But hopefully we'll get it back together because it's sure was you like get a ton of people perfect. To come. Yeah, I think that would be a great show. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I would say Navarro is probably my favorite guitar player of He's all up there. time. He's awesome. Uh, not a not a great human being, but you know. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just see him on these like tattoo shows. Yeah, he did that. I read his I read his autobiography. That was mm-hmm. the first time where. Like, I realized, because I read a lot of autobiographies or listen to a lot of audiobooks of biographies, and usually the more I like someone going into it, the less I enjoy the book, mm-hmm. because it sort of humanizes them, yeah. which is weird, because if it's someone that I don't really care about, it does the same thing. It humanizes right. them, but it sort of endears them to me. I'm like, I'm not a huge fan of their music, but, you know, they went through some shit and whatnot. I mean... Yeah. VH1's behind the music. I, I was the perfect person that that, that was designed for because I I convinced myself that I liked all these bands because I'm like, oh, you know, guys in REO Speedwagon went through some shit. Let's, yeah, you know, they're, they're really pretty nice. Good. Yeah, and Meatloaf. I'm like, oh, what a well, great Well, it's guy. getting harder. You know, it's harder and harder now to separate the uh, art from the, the person artist. from the art because, yeah. you know, especially with the stuff that's going on with all these sexual assault allegations and stuff. Sure. It's like, okay, maybe this guy, this person's an asshole. They've you know they've done a lot of drugs or whatever. Yeah, you can you can still sort of like well that's their life you know it doesn't really matter that's who they are as a person. But when it comes to stuff like that, it's it gets harder to sure support someone who's just done terrible things to other people. Yeah, you know, and it's a tough question because it's like okay, let's I don't know Woody Allen perfect example. This mm-hmm. guy's done just despicable things and he's yeah. a despicable person. So does that mean I can't like his movies? Right. Well, I don't want to support him, yeah. but you know, it doesn't mean I don't like some of his movies. But right? It, it's confusing. It's it's it, a tough it's a tough call. I was talking about that very phenomenon uh, a couple years ago. I went to Goodwill and just happened to I looked through the record bin, which usually they're in terrible condition, and it's you know. Um, uh, a lot of Jim Neighbors records, and that's about it. Usually, not a whole lot of quality stuff. Mm-hmm. And I came across six or seven nineteen sixties Bill Cosby LPs. Uh, you know, hysterical albums that you know we had had some cassettes and stuff. Yeah, growing perfect up, but example. Pris- pristine, mm-hmm. and I bought them, and then like a week later, all the allegations came out. Right. It's one of those things that I'm like, me being such a fan of the physical format of music like you know i mean granted those aren't music but like i can't bring myself to destroy them i know but i don't want them well i guess i think the answer is it's everybody's choice but like you know 
it's okay to have those, I guess. It's okay to 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 like what he did. I I wouldn't go out and buy another one. Sure. I support him further. I just I but, I think you know. with a comedian, it's hard for me to even listen to it because it's the, right. it's not it's not Woody Allen making a movie about characters. It's right. it's Bill Cosby, it's Louis C.K. presenting themselves and sure. stuff in their lives, and you're just like, ah, Louis C.K. is a tough one too because so much of his humor, you know, hints at right terrible things that he's done. Well. He's still funny. He's still fucking hilarious. Yeah. But, uh, well, you know, it's hard to support that. My single favorite, like, Louis C.K. bit, and it was just a throwaway thing in one of his specials years ago, was he talked about finding a a, a, a wedding photo album in a dumpster and jerking off to it, which was hysterical at the time because I'm like, that's such a weird, bizarre thing to say. And sure. then I'm like, okay, he probably actually did that. Yeah, yeah, so, that might have happened. Yeah, in front, I'm like, of, oh, know, shit, in front of somebody, like, that didn't want to see it. Yeah, like it went uh, from being hysterical because it was crazy to that's too real. I, I, I can't. I know, and you know, we could go on for hours. But a lot of art has its roots in you know, even characters have their roots in things that are real. Sure. Just like you know, but yeah, that's another whole. That's another whole yeah. podcast for another time. For sure. So thanks, well, man. hey man, thanks it's for been great. Thanks for chatting. Yeah, absolutely. Cool.